0: Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay, from The Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hello, Josh Lindsay. Hello, Christian Taylor. Soon-to-be second-time filmmaker. (laughs) One day. (laughs) And our button-pushing guy, couldn't do it without him, Jason Rugg. What's going on, Jason?
1: Not much. How you doing? I'm Good. Jason, things what? up. He he asked me a question. I couldn't just say hey there. I had to, you know, oh. <laughs> I had to answer the question. <laughs> um, Jason. Yeah,
0: I- I'm concerned about you, man. Why? Well, I feel like COVID's getting you down, man. I feel like isolation is bringing you down.
2: Ah, eh, no, I'm fine. <laughs> <feeling> all right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm doing okay. I see you though. You're in this basement.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I well, that's where I have all the lights and everything set up. You know, I, I kind of have to do it in here. I go up and see the sun every once in a while <laughs> when it There's... isn't overcast like today.
0: How how are you doing? You have a back problem.
2: Yeah, I'm not on drugs today, so woohoo! Hey. That, that's hey. great news. I haven't really had anything, mother. You know, other than a leave for a few days now, so. That's nice. Uh, I'm feeling a little bit better this week in terms of getting work done and uh, having a clearer head, Um, you know, and I'm spending a lot of time working on stuff for the girl who wore freedom to, um, again, get it ready for distribution. And we can talk about, you know, what that means and what we're exactly doing. But also because Hunter's here and because, you know, following up on our last week's conversation with Mark McLean about, you know, the business side of things, we've been having lots of conversations about the next thing. So there's been a lot of of that. And my brain in a lot of ways is really in a kerfuffle. I had this weird thing happen this week. I don't know if Josh can, Lindsay can understand it, but I'll try to explain it. So, you know, you asking me when, you know, when, when what's the end of this podcast? I mean, when are you going to be no longer a first-time filmmaker? That, that really kind of stuck with me. Like, yeah, when am I no longer a first-time filmmaker? And so, and then what happens next? And I feel like I am in that place of, okay, I've made a film. It's now in film festivals. It's, it's only halfway through its festival run, though. We still have six months left of this festival run if we hope to get distribution and release by D-Day next year. So I am still having to work on film festival stuff, deliverables for the film festivals themselves, as well as we know that if we get a distribution deal, we will have distribution things that we have to fulfill for that. So that's still a lot of work ahead of me before, like, you can watch my film on TV Or Netflix or something like that. And I don't think that I will be done until I am like through that process. Um, And probably until I start my next film really, because there is a question, am I going to be a one hit wonder? Or can I do this again? There's a lot of doubt that has crept in that I thought wouldn't be there after I made something that was successful. Because then you think, was that a fluke? Can I really do that again? Was it just the story? And how do I do that? And do I want to do that? It was really, really hard. How do these, you know, filmmakers who've got three and four films going at the same time, how are they doing that? You know? Anyway, so there's been a lot of that thinking going on. And as you know, Our industry right now, so this date is December 16th, 2020. We're still in the middle of COVID. Yes, a vaccine came out this week, but I don't think that's going to change a ton through next year. We're still going to be battling, you know, stuff and having to wear masks and social distancing. And so that's going to have an effect on everything, on film festivals, on theaters, on, you know, big gatherings. It'll begin to change, but I don't know that it will change dramatically until maybe the next year or 2022. That's my speculation. So as a filmmaker, I'm watching the industry change before my eyes. And there are people that know nothing about film that know basic things like movie theaters aren't opening and they're going under and there are huge chains that are going under. And Disney all of a sudden is going to release everything on Disney+. Plus. Or you know maybe some things in theaters. I mean, what do you guys know? What have you read about this all this industry shakeup?
1: Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot. Uh, Josh, you want to start?
0: Um, I don't know a lot except to say, you know, uh, the 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 people who make films and distribute films, they're going to go where the money is, and you know, theaters will probably go under, but if there's money to be made there, someone will buy the theaters and, you know, five years from now, we'll be back to going back to the theaters if, if, you know, if that's the case, which I'm of the mindset personally, that we will go back to uh, quote a a more quote normal, what we used to, you know, going out to concerts, going to movies, things like that, traveling again, Uh, maybe not in 2021, but I really believe in the next two or three or five years. And if there's money to be made there in movie theaters, we'll be going back to the movie theaters. That's just the way it is. I think streaming is new and, and uh, people are taking advantage of it, but no one knows what the pitfalls are. No one knows what happens when it gets too much and um, the people get bored with it after a while, We're getting stuck in their basement, watching stuff, you know, who, who knows what's going to come, but it'll be wherever the money is. And so, I tend to think people will want to get out again and go to theaters eventually. And I, I personally, I would imagine these big companies aren't, I mean, they're, they're looking at the short term, but they're also looking at the long term, uh, you know, 10 years down the road and uh, talking about, you know, contingency plans. You know, like if it goes this way, we got to be ready. If it goes that way, we got to be ready.
1: And and just speaking strictly of movie theaters, there's also the change this year now where studios can now own movie theaters again. That's something that they haven't been able to do since the thirties. And so I think you're going to see a Disney theater chain come out of that because, you know, they can make a lot more money if they own the means of distribution and the production. If they own both, then they can make a lot more money. So I think you're going to see theaters come back potentially as smaller But more experiential based so it's going to be completely themed as things Disney owns, and you're going to see more of that stuff come out. Um, I don't know necessarily if we're going to see that with like Warner Brothers who's deciding we're going to put our entire 2021 slate on HBO Max, you know that that's a pretty big decision that they made to just dump everything on there <laughs> and you know, that might just be this year. That might just be next year. We, we don't know what, what the future holds. I don't think they know what the future holds. There's been a lot of pushback from creators on that. Um, Christopher Nolan came out and was like, I don't want to work with Warner brothers anymore. I, I I went to bed thinking I worked with, with the best movie studio out there and I woke up working for the worst streamer. And it's like, he doesn't really work for Warner brothers, but he his partnership with them. I'm not sure if he has an overall deal with them or, or whatnot. Um, but I think it's interesting because with streaming, have, have either of you heard of Tubi? Do you know what Tubi is? Yes, but go ahead. You okay. <laughs> so uh, there's the difference between SVOD and AVOD, and SVOD is subscription video on demand. That's Netflix, Disney Plus, HBO Max. Tubi is AVOD. They're advertisement video on demand. You watch ads in between, or in in the middle of <laughs> content. And so Tubi, I believe is now owned by Fox and Fox is projecting that Tubi within the next, I think next year is going to be more profitable than the Fox cable channel, like the Fox normal distribution channel Fox Tubi will be more profitable. And so as you see the streaming war happen, you're going to see a lot more people migrate to the free streaming, (laughs) the stuff where, Hey, I can watch that movie. I just have to watch it with ads, but I can watch it for free. Because that's what broadcast was, right? Broadcast was supposed to be you get cable or you get uh, shows and movies and things, but you have to watch ads in between. That's how it's paid for. But then it kind of crept into cable as well. And now there's only like three channels that don't have ads (laughs) (laughs) that that you pay for. So I think you're going to see like Crackle has almost doubled in the last year and they're doing great. And I think uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment owns them and they're doing phenomenal and no one had any idea like Sony owned them and sold them last year. Cause they, you know, they don't, they didn't want to do with anything with crackle anymore. I think they still own a good part of it, but now uh, chicken soup for the soul um, manages it. So there's all these different pieces that everyone's shuffling around and no one knows where it's going because they don't know what the consumer wants yet because we're all going to get fed up with paying 15 bucks a month or, or 20 bucks a month to watch This stuff, and eventually it's going to cost more than cable to just have three streaming services.
2: So, (laughs) brings me to the discussions and the research that my team has been doing for the last three weeks. As I'm sitting here trying to figure out, I have this slate of films that I'm interested in making. And I know that I do not want to do it the way that I did it that I did The Girl Who Wore Freedom. I don't even think it's possible anymore to do it the way I did it with The Girl Who Wore Freedom. So I wanna do it in a new and different way. And as I'm looking at this total industry shakeup and I'm having to you know, sort of project out, okay, look, I'm 54 years old. Four, a lot of first time filmmakers are a lot younger than I am. And so their situation is different, but I'm looking at you know, how much work time I have ahead of me, you know and wh- how is the industry going to change during that time and if i want to get started quickly and make films quickly what's the solution to this and it all comes down hunter with his you know snappy little business degree um, you know that's what he keeps coming back to it's going to be where the money is and in the end the viewer is going to decide the viewer is going to decide what they want and where they want to watch it and so what's been interesting is Hunter has access to Ibis World, which does all of this research into industry stuff. And so he and a few people on our team are digging into what the film industry, the entertainment industry, the distribution platform, all of that looks like. And so they've looked at the data and it's recent data and their projections are that the way that it's done now is on the decline within the next 10 years, the whole distribution model, the way that it's set up now, the way that we think about how films got, it's its dying. And so, and as Hunter was reading that to me, it reminded me of the voiceover industry when I first got in. When I first got in, there were all these gatekeepers. You were a voiceover person. And in order to get any jobs, you had to have an agent. And that was really hard. And then you had to get into you know, the union. And then you have, you're dealing with create to get a job, you had to get an agent who sent you an audition from an ad agency. So it went from Procter & Gamble to the ad agency, to the agent, to the talent, to the recording studio. And all of that was pre-digital. So once the digital age came in and all of a sudden people realized that they could do things on their own, smart, entrepreneurial voiceover people thought, I'll build a studio in my house. And I'll just, you know, be a lot cheaper than the recording studio. So the recording studios were the first ones to get cut out. Then you had the talent agents being squeezed out. Then, and, and now the talent person had to learn it all. You know, the engineering, the acting part of it, the tech part of it, of delivering it, you know, the uh, knowing all of the equipment. And so what happened was Procter and Gamble then come straight to me. But now through a tech service usually. You know, and there's tons of them out there. Voice Jungle, Voice Realm, Voice Bunny, Voice Owl, Voice 123, voiceover.com. And they're all super cheap jobs. And so it's saved all of the big buyers lots of money. Who's making the money? Not the agents not the recording studios and oftentimes not the talent. It's bottom basement that they're paying the talent. It's all of those, you know, people that figured out the future of the voiceover thing and how to make money. So it's all those little tech companies that figured out how to deliver cheap, to deliver cheap stuff to the, you know, big buyers. So I see a similar thing happening now where, these places like YouTube, and Tubi, and whatever they're they're going back to. People want free content. When you look at the pain points, Josh, we were talking about you know this with you the other day. When you look at the pain points of the end user, the viewer, what are they? You know, Josh, you named some the other day.
0: Well, finding a show that my family of five all want to watch at the same time, uh, or finding time to you know nowadays when i watch a movie it's in pieces so finding time to to watch a whole movie right um uh so time finding something and then um jason brought the other one up just cost like it's at 1st we you're like oh this is going to cut the cable bill but now it's like wait things are more expensive than they were prior because now i'm paying for cable and all these streaming services
2: right jason what are the pain points can you think of from the end user or the viewer point of view. Yeah, I think,
1: honestly, the, the biggest thing is is the, the paralysis of choice.
2: Yes, paralysis of choice. Paralysis of choice, how much it costs. Everybody wants to know when I say I have this film, their first question is, well, how long is it? Most people do not want to sit now for an hour and a half film they want a series where they can choose to sit for 22 35 minutes or you know binge for as long as they want if they have a day they want the choice of of that time and and so you know somebody in the industry has got to figure this out because the end user is going to get fed up with having to pay for all of these different apps and services and cable or whatever right and so that's why I'm saying we're sitting here trying to figure out this industry is changing. I don't know that it's going to be the same. I had a conversation with another friend of mine, Pam Tierney, and she's relatively my age. We came into the voiceover business at the same time. This was just yesterday. And I was talking to her about this stuff that Hunter and I were finding as we researched. And I said, it reminds me of the time like when our parents or grandparents, when they got all bent out of shape about Elvis or the Beatles or how rock and roll was going to destroy music or MTV, how, you know, it's going to destroy the radio, right? There's all these industry interruptions that the generation before says is bad. So I can look at my boys. So I have boys that are Jason's age and a little younger, And I look at how they're experiencing content. We used to watch the ending of MASH as the entire United States, all at the same time, all together. We had these big experiences together or friends or cheers, right? And so we would all watch on that night and we'd talk about it the next day and that, or we would go to the movies together in big groups or with our friends and we would experience that in that way. And we still think of that, at least Josh's age and I think of that, as the ultimate way to consume entertainment with people, being together, watching things together, whether it's with your family or your friends, in a movie theater. But as I watch these younger kids, they're still sharing experiences like that together. It just looks very differently. It's usually on their phones. They're sharing TikTok videos. They're sharing YouTube videos. They're sharing memes. They're passing them around. They're doing, you know, it's all on their phone. And they're all saying, hey, did you watch this? They watch it together. They talk about it. Or one of them gets hooked on a series on Netflix, like my boys were hooked on How I Met Your Mother, the oldest one. Then they introduced to the next one. And then they introduced to the next one. And now they're all watching them together and quoting the different lines. So the way that our my generation enjoyed entertainment and shareability is very different than what's happening in the generations below us. And I'm noticing that for the first time that I used to look down on that with the kids. And I still think it's bad. Like, I still think it's a better experience to go to the movie theater with your friends and have this night out and be with people. But the question is who determines at the end of the day what that experience and what that shareability is gonna be like? The buyer, the, whoever's going to pay for that. So who's, who's fading out and who's coming in? That's the other question you know it is going to be my jason's generation and younger and how they're used to consuming entertainment and what they're willing to pay for and how much money they have yeah that that's
1: the interesting thing that that all those things you you listed every single one of them is free right youtube memes tiktok all that's free right and you know you had quibi come along and try oh. to make short form content that people had to pay for and they couldn't share it with their friends. They kind of just had to say, Hey, did you watch that thing? And it blew up. It didn't work. And it's because our, my generation is used to short form stuff is free. That's just on YouTube. Why would I pay for that?
2: Right. That's the conclusion we're coming to.
1: But
0: eventually Jason's generation, I imagine will be getting married Having kids, jobs, mortgages, things like that, and you know, part of going to the movies is get out of the house. You know, you're looking for something outside of the house, and you don't have time, you know, to to watch, you know, videos and stuff because you're raising a family, you have a career, you know, those types of things. Uh, I assume these things will continue in the future. Raising families, having careers, (laughs) Um, and if that's the case you know, then they're going to go to different things. I mean, my, I, I, it, I, I don't think it's going to be like that forever. You know, I mean, I used to love Saturday morning cartoons. I'm not interested in Saturday morning cartoons anymore. Right. I'm, I'm at a different stage of life. You know, that, that changed for me. And I imagine it will change for the younger generation as they get older.
2: Right. Exactly. It is going to change and we don't have any idea what it will be like when Jason is married and has kids. But we do know that technology will continue to move along. We do know that free is in. We do know that people are getting super tired of having too many things to choose from and too much to pay for. And the question's going to be, you know, I do think, do I think movie theaters will go away forever? No, I don't. Do I think the pendulum will swing back to where we will have, you know, things that we want to go to? I don't think concerts are ever going anywhere. But but the question becomes the financial viability of those things. But even before COVID, theaters were having trouble. And theaters were then putting in different seats. They were putting in, you know, they were partnering with bowling alleys and other stuff just to survive. They were becoming entertainment venues. So, yeah.
1: Um, the theater that I grew up going to uh, like was, uh, they declared bankruptcy in January and then they <laughs> they got completely like, they were like, we're still going to operate. We're still going to be fine. And every single one of that chain is now gone as of um, when we're recording this in December, every single one by the summer, they were all gone.
2: Right. And this so is, then you, yeah think about the math of that. If Hollywood is saying, you know, for the next year, Warner Brothers is going to put everything on streaming. What's that going to do, you know, for the market? Here's the other weird thing. This is another thing Hunter pointed out to me that really kind of, I still can't get my mind around. He's very against these gatekeepers and these intellectual experts that say, this is what's good starting with the Academy, right? The Academy says, this is good. This is worthy. This is what should get an Oscar. It's the same thing at the film festivals. There's all these gatekeepers of who decides what's good stuff. Well, in the end, who really decides? Who really decides what has the most value? It's the end user. It's the viewer. And oftentimes movies that don't win Oscars or that the Academy doesn't, they're the ones that make a ton of money. And so this year, you know, up until this year, you could not have your film online and qualify for the Oscars. Well, now that's changing and that's going to change. I mean, they were going to say it was just this year. Well, all next year film festivals are already saying, because we're in some for next year, that they're all going to be online. They're going to be a hybrid or online model. And I predict that's going to continue going forward. If, if you had to ask me, because I'm looking at the festivals realizing, like, I'm in the middle of it. I'm watching them realize, oh, my gosh, we can get people to come to our local event, but we can get a lot more money if we make the streaming available worldwide. And that makes the filmmaker say, oh, more people watch my film. Maybe I'll get distribution or whatever. So there is just such a huge shakeup that it, it it is impossible at this moment to know what it will be like. But if you're in my position who wants to make films, I have a limited time left in my career if I don't die tomorrow. I have to make some decisions about how I'm going to choose to think about my business going forward. Think about how I'm going to make movies going forward. Think about how I'm going to distribute my movies going forward. In our business right now, distributors are the gatekeepers. So w- with all that
1: said, it, it's making me think of one specific avenue that we haven't talked about that is a little bit unorthodox, and I'm not sure if it works for this model, but it might be worth discussing, would be Patreon. Like an ongoing support sort of system where people could support, you know, maybe shorter documentaries, that sort of thing. And then, you know, one long one every couple of years or something like that. Well, I wonder if you could go that route.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's one thing we have been kicking around, particularly as we watch what happens with the Phil Vischer podcast, which we're all, we're intimately aware of. And what's been so funny is Phil Vischer has made some videos over the past year that have gone viral Instantly, and they were free. And this was this huge revelation to him. Like, oh my goodness, look at all these people watching. Viola Davis just retweeted my you know, video and told people to watch. We gained then subscribers to the Holy Post podcast because of that. And then Patreon subscribers, which are monthly subscribers that pay for us to do the podcast because of that. So I do believe there is a model for that. Um, you know, and it is something that needs to be considered. Um, you know, I don't know. There are a lot of questions out there. I don't think there are a lot of easy answers, um, but I definitely think it's something that we're going to have to continue looking at. And so as you ask me, when, you know, when am I no longer a first time filmmaker? I don't know the answer to that because in order to make more films, I've got to figure out, I think this problem?
0: Yeah, I, I think you have to decide what you are. Because you're either a filmmaker, which means you make films. That doesn't mean you make a living. That doesn't mean your films are successful. It just means you're a filmmaker, right? And if you're lucky, I, you make money and so on. Um, but then in the same conversation, you're talking about, Having income and uh, you know regular salary, and where do you raise that support, and what should you make, and and that sounds like a different thing. Like you're a content producer, right? You're just you're the distributor or whatever, right? You know, and um, I because uh, earlier on you're talking about how do we support ourselves. You know, in my world, in my current career. With the comp I'm 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 self-employed. I uh I don't have a boss, um, but I did not create this company. It's basically a company within a company, and I started part-time. Um, and it was designed that way because we're like, look, starting a business is hard, it's expensive, it takes time. You better have another source of income while you're pursuing this new business opportunity. And uh, and that's how it worked out, and that's how it's worked out for most people, where it's like, you better be married to someone that's got an income. You better have another income because feed, putting food on the table, starting a business is really, really hard. And if you make it, or if you don't make it, well, you still get your day job or your spouse still has a job or whatever. Right. Uh, but if you do make it, then you can transition. And so when I hear you, hear you speaking, I, I I don't know. I, I don't know. I think you have to decide what, it is you want and then pursue that despite income necessarily, you know, like,
2: yeah. And I mean that, that is you're right. And I think every filmmaker has to make that decision. It's the same way as every voice actor has to make the same decision. I learned this lesson in the first business I created, Which and I tell this like I was coaching new voice people that wanted to get into the business. Look, you're not going to be able to make money. You know, they everybody wants to do voiceover as a living. You know, it you can't do that. It's like any other business. You have to have income to get started, and you're gonna have to work your tail off in order to build that business. And it's three to five years before you're profitable. Same as any other business. And With the films for the indie filmmaker, the question always is the same thing. How do I make these films? How do I pay for these films? And what do I want to do with these films? Do I want to be a hobbyist that just makes films? And then, but then what are you going to do with them? Where are you going to put them? Who is going to see them? Or, you know, do you want people to see your work? Do you want people to hear your stories? I mean, Nicole Bernardi-Reese was on a long time ago, and she always asks the filmmakers that. Well, what do you want from this? You know, do you want experience? Do you want to sell this? Do you want to change something with this film? And I just know in the independent film world, making films is getting cheaper, for sure, but it's still expensive, and if you want to go the self funding route or the donation route, it takes a lot of time. And yes, you have to have some other source of income while you're doing that. And that's the way it's been done in the past. Most independent filmmakers have a regular full time job and they do this on the side when they can. And, but a lot of them that I've talked to, their dream is to just continue making films. And what I've watched voiceover actors do, and I've watched actually actors do, and I've watched other filmmakers do, is they are running that rabbit wheel, thinking that eventually something will hit and I'll be able to do it full time. And and I'm sitting here saying, I'm, I'm sitting here with that same question. Do I want to make another film? Do I want to do it with donations? Do I want to have investors where I have them? I have to owe them stuff that I can't, don't know that I can promise at this stage.
0: Yeah. You know, there's many things of, uh, think of is, uh, the the actress who played um, Pam Beasley on The Office.
1: uh, I forget forget her name. uh, Jenna Fisher, I think.
0: Yes. Yes. I actually went to college with her. I might've met her once. I don't remember, but we were at the school at the same time. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, She wrote a book on, it's like a survival's guide to being an actor in Hollywood. And there's a story in there where she, I I don't know how many years it was, but it was years, like seven, eight, nine years, something like that. She went to her, it's where nothing. I mean, nothing was happening and she's broke and year after year. (laughs) And she went to her, agent and said i, I i'm, I'm gonna give it another six months i can't take this anymore and and, and they got in her face and it's like do you i'm sorry did you want to be an actor it's like well yeah I was like well this is it you're you're doing it like you don't you don't stop like are you here for the money or are you here to be an actor and it's like well, i want to be an actor like okay you're doing it and it's like kind of too bad you know like this hard <laughs> there's no money in it you know like and <laughs> So she's like, all right. And then a year later she landed the office and, uh, you know, then, you know, that now I guess pays her bills forever and for always. And she doesn't do a whole lot since then, uh, <laughs> which is great. I mean, she, I guess she can act when she gets opportunities and whatnot and raise a family, but not have to worry about paying the bills anymore. Right. And she got to, to live that experience. But I guess the point is, is back to my question, like, what, what do you want to be? What are you, you know, do you want to make films? Then go make films. And, uh, and how you do that, I don't know. You try it one way, maybe try it another way. Uh, I, I, I think of um, Billy Bob Thornton, you know, and like the, the whole premise of like, you have an idea for a film, but you don't shoot the film. You shoot a snippet of it, a scene from it or something. And then you sell that to the people who actually have the cameras and the crews and the distribution and all that kind of stuff. And I'm sure there's some variation of that where it's like, you know, how do you do that for the girl who wore freedom where it's like, well, you shoot some footage, you do some interviews and you basically make a trailer, you know, and then you sell that. And then they say, OK, great. Here's some money. Go make that film. And if it's good, then your next film, you know, you you have leverage, you know, where is it-
2: That is the way it has always traditionally been done. Right. And I'm saying. That's going to change. That's changing. I'm looking, some of it won't change. And, but I know people that are younger than I already are saying this is changing and they're doing it a different way. Which is what? Jason?
1: <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, ideas? Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, we could talk about, um, you know, how, how Jason Blum makes films i don't know if you're aware of the blumhouse model do you know that it's, it's a fascinating model and it it was uh piloted with um scott derrickson was one of the original directors they did it with but his idea was okay we're gonna make micro budget films everyone will be made for a million dollars and we're gonna make a bunch of them and most of them are gonna suck but we're gonna get some good ones and those will make us money Jason Blum is known for um, Paranormal Activity, which was made for like, what, $50,000 or something and made hundreds of million. You know, it's it's there's, um, there's different models like that. And those are easier to do when it's like, okay, we'll take a very specific premise and we'll shoot it cheap. Documentary filmmaking is not all that easy to do that way. So the Jason Blum model, while really cool and interesting and no one else really does it, it's kind of specific to how they do it. A lot of what they make are horror movies because you can make horror
2: movies. Well, and they pay off. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, that's the cash cow. Well, and then you have things like the chosen, the chosen is a whole new way of making and financing, you know, a series. So, I mean, I think we could talk about this till the cows come home, and I'm sure people are probably bored of listening to us speculate. But (laughs) I do think uh, five years from now, this podcast will be interesting in the sense of what did actually happen when we're sitting here trying to figure it out. Um, Because I think, you know, that's just what I'm asking myself, Josh. I'm asking myself that question.
0: I, I, I think it'll be someone... Like no one knows, obviously, but someone's just going to do something and it's going to land, it's going to stick, it's going to make money. And people are going to go to that person and be like, oh, you knew. How would you know? Like now we're going to copy that person. And that person didn't know. They just went out and they were usually because they're, you know, they're handcuffed, right? They have limited funds, they have limited resources, and they're forced to do something in a unique way that leads to an opportunity of a a discovery of a new way to do something. And my guess is that's how it's going to be. Someone's going to just stumble across something. And so that's, I think you just got to do what it is you, you know, try and do what it is you love. What do you want to do? Try that. And then you might be the one to stumble across the new way to do it.
2: Well, and I think, you know, innovation, the best time to innovate is when there's disruption and there could not be any more disruption in our industry Than right now. So I do think there are people that are going to, you know, hit lightning as they try to figure out whatever. But the other thing is, you said something early on, Josh, that I also think rings true, which is the Hollywood is sitting there going, we got to hedge our bets. We don't know if it's going to go this way. We don't know if things are going to go this way. We got to have a contingency plan. We've got to have probably six plans of how things are going to go during the pandemic, you know two years out, five years out, 10 years out. And um, they can do that because they've got deep pockets um, and they will determine some of the industry. But I also think that um, the viewers in the end and the money in the end determines, um, you know, the higher up decisions. So it will be interesting to see where things go. And I guess I'll have to give you an update on... Our continued conversations. (laughs) Until next time. (laughs) Until next time, I'm going to go back focusing on actually finishing up The Girl Who Wore Freedom. And I think the hard part for me and the reason I'm really struggling with the money part of it is, especially during COVID, and I've said it before, I have people I need to pay. And typically in the industry, people will defer their payments, you know, for further down the road. And these people did these jobs for me, whether a sound or color or legal or whatever, um, knowing that I didn't have the money then, but hoping I would have it. And, um, you know, I don't. And I've got bills to pay and I don't want to be in this situation again. Um and so I, I would like to be able to figure this out. I've got to figure it out now for the girl who wore freedom because I still have, I got a bill yesterday for $750 for the rights to use one minute of a song just for film festivals that I have to pay, you know, and I got to figure out where that money's coming from. So that's the hard reality on the ground for me is I'm still trying to figure out how to get this film across the finish line before I can ever even see a dollar. And, you know, that's been rough. COVID hasn't helped, but. Yeah, 2020
1: is the hardest year to see where the finish line is.
0: (laughs) But you're not alone. I mean, businesses across the board are in similar situations, you know, so. Um, definitely not alone and, and any, any of the struggles financial otherwise you have aren't just related to Christian Taylor and the film she made, right. You know, it's affected by all kinds of COVID being one of them. So, um, there's a light in the tunnel. You just can't see it. Right. So Keep chugging along.
2: Yeah. And you know, that's where I go back to what Ken Burns said in the beginning, being a producer and being a filmmaker is solving a million problems. Not quitting when those problems arise, creatively thinking out of the box about how to solve them, and realizing that it is going to be hard. And you have to have true faith and never quit. And so I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. I will pay my people. I will figure it out, you know? And I will probably hopefully make another film. (coughs) One day, it'll happen. Well, thank you guys very much for thinking, uh, thinking through these interesting topics with me. Uh, I love your thoughts, and I appreciate you spending time with us on the podcast. And yeah, Thanks. if
0: there's a listener who wants to make a donation, uh, will this podcast be out pre end of year?
2: This podcast is going to be out, uh, yes, like December twenty third, twenty fourth.
0: So you can still make a tax deductible donation and where can they do this Christian?
2: Uh, The girl who wore freedom.com. And uh, it, it would be incredible if you would do that. Any little bit helps. Um, And we, we are fiscally sponsored through Illinois film Alliance IFA and uh, we are incredibly grateful for them. So you just go to our website, you make a donation actually to IFA, but it's noted to the Girl Who Wore Freedom. And we then receive that donation. Um, I'm happy to say that over the course of the two years that we've been working this way, a total of $101,000 have been donated. um, And that has helped us pay a lot of bills and get this far. And it's amazing to me. Uh, When I put the first $500 in the account, I thought I'll never be able to raise the money I need for this film. So (laughs) crazy, that kind of happened anyway. And um, yeah, we really just do appreciate our listeners. Thank you for listening, for following along on this journey. Um, Please, if you haven't liked us on um, LinkedIn, we've now started really putting stuff on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Please go do that because everybody is looking at our follow numbers for distribution. So that's it for today.
0: Awesome. Well, hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it.
2: Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about The Girl Who Wore Freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhoworefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhoworefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.